or you can open up to the book of James as we continue our exposition. We are in James chapter 1 still. This is our third sermon there, (laughs) and we're going to close out the chapter. Already James, in this context, he's the first, we keep reminding ourselves, he's he's the first New Testament writer. This is the first book that ever went into the New Testament. He wrote it mid, mid-40s, all right? Jesus went up to heaven in about 33 AD. And in the mid-40s, James, the pastor in Jerusalem, who had seen many of his people, thousands of his people, displaced out of Jerusalem because of persecution, he then writes to them as, as they're sort of spread out over, over uh, Syria or what is now sort of uh, 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 Turkey, Uh, They've they've gone north, they've gone west, they're they're escaping the persecution, and he's writing to them. He's writing to them in their trial, in their difficulty, and in their pain. Of course, he also uh, mentioned the particular trial that many of them were under was this financial trial. We've all experienced, isn't it just peaceful to know that God addresses the issue of financial trials in the New Testament? Like, you're, you're not some ridiculously worldly, useless human being that calls yourself a Christian just because you worry about money, or just because you fail to make ends meet, or because you feel like God is just way more important than having to look after your bank account. No, no James, James, James talks about it because it matters to God. He's going to say, this is a trial, money makes everything better or worse, like, it, it, it adds a layer of, of difficulty to this, and God knows He's, he's not abandoning you in this. He's, he's here for you. He's, he's loving you. He's guiding you. He's authoritative. He's sovereign. He brought this trial to you. But, of course, we've been learning, the deepest meaning comes out of our trials. The deepest, uh, the deepest lessons, the lessons God wants to teach us through our trials in order to deepen our character, it always requires that you remain steadfast and do not resort to sin. Never, at any point during your trial, is God going to give you a free ticket and say, you'll get out of this, Uh, there's a shortcut, and you're allowed to sin. You're allowed to do something the Bible tells you not to do. That's just never the case. Always, the command is, God is sovereign. This life was never meant to be easy. I don't know what your uni lecturers or your high school teachers told you. If you had a safe space that you could go and cry in on the campus, that's not life. Life is hard. Life is difficult. James doesn't sugarcoat it. He says it's tough. You're going to bleed. You'll die eventually, but remain steadfast. What will get you through this is not remaining comfortable or safe or or padded or bubble wrapped or, or happy, but pursuing holiness. That, he says, is the blessed man and woman. That person who remains like a rock under the beating waterfall. That rock that does not move, but remains planted on the word of God in obedience to it, that is the blessed person. <clears throat> so in James chapter 1 and verse 19, we're going to continue to read. And we're going to see, here's my cheat sheet, just so that as we read, you're able to pull out what you realize, uh, uh, what, what he's saying. The, the clue here is that he's talking about our relationship to God's word as individuals. Okay, Your relationship to God's word as it is preached, as it is taught, as you read it, your relationship to God's word, and the, how that relates to your relationship with others. So your relationship to, to non-Christians, to Christians, to brothers and sisters, to mums and dads, whatever. Your relationship with other people is reflective of your relationship with the word of God. See if you can pick this up as we go. And if you do, I won't have to preach a sermon. We'll just go home. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. 
let every person, sorry, no, we're starting in verse 18. That's our, that's our platform for tonight. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, perceive, and perseveres, bearing, uh, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, uh, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May God bless this reading in our midst this evening. Amen? Amen. <coughs> First of all, we start seeing our relationship to the Word of God as it bears out from verse 18 through to verse 21. We need to be receiving God's Word without filthiness, with meekness, our reception of God's Word, because God's Word is the instrument by which He brings life to our souls. Don't just think justification life. Don't just think conversion life at the beginning of your Christian walk. Not only, not only did he bring life to your souls then, but at every step along the way, like water and food that you need each day, God is sustaining, God is giving life to you on your Christian journey through the instrument of the word of God. But look at verse 18. Verse 18, he is referring primarily to that moment when God brings you to life. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. That's language of birth. He, he birthed us in the spiritual realm, the new birth that we talk about, being born again. He did that of his own choice through the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits to his children. So that God gave spiritual birth to you through the instrumentation of the Word of God. And isn't this your experience? Well, whether you agree or not, this is your experience, but I'm sure you can relate to it nonetheless, no matter how forgetful you are, that at your point of conversion, it was enacted, it was engaged, it was activated by the Word of God that had been either preached to you in a sermon, and, and some of you had the testimony that you were just sitting under the preaching of the Word and things changed within you. You saw Jesus in a new light. You were, you were converted right then and there. Some of you, maybe it happened during a song, well, it wasn't a song, it wasn't the music, they have no, no spiritual power, but what it was was those words that you had heard start coming to life as, as you sing them and you realize something, the truth clicked and you were born again. Others of you, maybe it was at home reading your Bible alone and there it is, the activation of your spiritual life by the word of God. Others of you, it was a friend explaining something to you and in what they were saying, there was encapsulated the truth of the gospel, the word of God. 
and that brought you to life. Maybe you were alone. Maybe you are just on a, on a bus ride. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He was on a train. He got on the train, a non-Christian. He got off the train at the next stop, a Christian. Something had clicked as he mulled over what he had been hearing. But still in that moment, when he was converted, it was the truth that he had heard, which in God's perfect timing, budded forth in spiritual life. This is the reality. God's word gives life. God's word brought you forth in the spiritual realms. And you see this in his context. To those who are in trials, who are tempted to blame God or think that God is tempting them, this is what we covered last week. If you're tempted to blame God for what you're going through, or if you're tempted to think that God is tempting you in the moment, remember that God is good, he is unchanging, and he is life-giving. Look at verse 17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God doesn't give you temptations. God doesn't give you curses. God gives you what we called last week, blessings gift-wrapped in thorns. Yes, they're painful. Yes, they hurt. But they're good gifts from God that are going to sanctify you. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I was tempted this week, Lord annoy some of you, I was tempted this week to just do a whole sermon on that little half a sentence there at the end of verse 17. The, the immutability and the simplicity of the divine being as expressed to us through the pages of Scripture. That God is as he is and there is no other way to define God except of God. I'll be doing this in a fellowship group later on in the term. The simplicity of God. I'm already started. I can't do it. I'm not going to lecture on it. It's amazing that all that is in God is God. He does not change. He doesn't have composite parts which are put together and, and some of those gears might grind sometimes and he gives good gifts sometimes, but sometimes he's, he's that light which flickers and a gift comes down from him that is not perfect. No. James, James pushes us against that thinking by in verse 18 saying, you want an example of the sort of thing that God does through his words that come down from heaven? Completely unforced. When no one else's will was bending his arm of his own will, totally free to do what he wanted. He brought you forth by the word of God into spiritual life. This unchanging, sovereign, good God. All of those are three elements in that verse. He's unchanging, unlike you, unlike the weather, unlike politics. He's unchanging. He is good, so never bringing forth evil. Again, unlike you. And he is sovereign. He makes the decision, he brings you forth. He sends you trials when he wants, unlike you. You're not in control, you're not all that good, and you're very fickle. How gracious it is for James to tell us God's not like us. He's above us, he's better than us. He is the one and only true, unchanging sovereign. But you see then, in verse 19 through 21, the application of that immediately, if God is unchanging, if his word brings forth life in us, then the application is, Shut your mouth more, listen more, speak less. Make less excuses. Verse 19. So know this, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. If God's word is a life-giving word, then be quick to hear. If the water is life-giving water, then open up the tap. Bring your canisters to take it home. If God's word is life-giving and it is, then be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to to anger, for the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of God, so put away 
all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The seed of God's word went into your heart to bring you into life. And now, James is speaking to Jews, again, remember, displaced from their homes, persecuted by their family members, chased down with weapons by their cousins and employers and neighbors so that they had to leave the city, leave the nation. They fled north. They're, they're now into southeastern sort of Europe area, Asia Minor, and they're, they're poor and they're struggling and they're in a horrible, terrible trial, no doubt doing funerals on the road as their loved ones are being hunted. And into that situation, James is telling them, you were born by the word of God and you will be sustained by the word of God. Continue to let it come into you so that you can bear the fruit that the seed wants to bear. In your trial, receive the word of God. But we by nature, right, this, is, this is Christians by nature. Unsanctified as we are, we, we have a ways to go yet. And all of us naturally, we sort of stand as gatekeepers over the soil of our hearts. This is every one of us. And if you think it's not you, that's proven my point. Every single one of us get defensive when the word starts coming out and doing anything other than patting us on the back and encouraging us. And, and well, you're here, right? You don't come to a church uh, unless you walked into the wrong one because there's one very close to us that'll get up in a shiny suit and a massive smile and just tell you that you're God's favorite kid and, and he just wants to pour out blessings. And, and if you're in suffering in life, all that, that's unbeknownst to God. He wants to give you blessings because you're so great. Look, he died for you. You must be worth something, right? James is not like that. We're not like that. We deliver the word of God in its punchy form as James gives it to us. But every one of us, when that comes forward, when the word comes to challenge us, we stand as security detail over the soil of our heart and we are quick to speak in defense. We are very defensive. The word comes out and as it's scattered through the sermon or a Bible study or a lecture or a friend who brings some rebuke or encouragement we're often looking at it and saying, I don't like that. In fact, there's a reason I've not dealt with that sin in my life yet. I can blame my upbringing or another relationship or, or I need that sin to deal well with this person's sin and then I'll repent of my anger after I've rebuked them and then I'll deal with this over here. There's good reason that this needs to just stay as it is. I don't like that. No, I don't want to treat that person that way. I don't like the way that that command makes me feel and we're quick to pick those seeds up as Satan does in the parable. We want to quickly pick the seeds up and throw them away because that's not the sort of garden we want. That's, we're not comfortable with that yet. We're quick to speak to our own defense and make excuses. And that is what verse 19 is telling us. Look at verse 19. <coughs> I think people frequently read that in the context of interpersonal relationships. When you're talking to your friend, when you're having an argument with your husband or your wife, be quick to listen uh, uh, slow to speak and slow to anger. Now that's true, and that's a perfectly good application, but first he is talking about your relationship to the Word of God. And that's fine, that's what we said as we're starting tonight. We're looking at our relationship to the Word and how it relates to our relationship with other people. But it is primarily a command about how you receive the Word. We know this because verse 21 says, put away your filthiness and rampant wickedness, not so that you get along in your relationships, but so that you can receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, so the reason you need to be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to make excuses, slow to anger, is because the word is coming to you through sermon, through the scriptures, through a friend, through a pastor, and you're going to be, as a human being, not yet glorified, defensive, quick to speak, quick to defend your own heart and its situation, especially in a trial. This is what, this is what modern day people would call victim blaming. James is not allowed to look at people in a trial and say some of their sin is their fault, some of their struggles are their fault because they're not responding well. You're not allowed to do that in counseling or any kind of psychotherapy these days. It's in the books. It's not allowed. You can get fined or sued if you do that in the wrong profession. You're not allowed to tell people their struggles are their fault. James has no problem with it because your sin is your biggest problem, not your external situation. And part of the way that sin manifests is when the word comes, you're defensive. Quick to speak, slow to listen. Quick to throw away the seed that could have borne forth life, but you, you want to keep the soil of your heart the way that it has been already. We're slow to hear, quick to make the excuses, quick to get angry in response to God's word. <clears throat> How many times do you come into sermons, Bible studies, sit down with a friend or sitting down with your pastor and you're in defense mode. Of course they brought that up. Any idiot could have seen that I'm still sitting in that way. There's no, no, no brownie points for seeing that. You, you fool, shut up about it. If I haven't repented by now, of course I'm not going to because you tell me, all right? All right, we're going to have to try and change the subject. Oh, of course the Bible study got to this topic. I bet that my friend told the Bible study leader that I was going through this. All right, now, now I need to whack them over the, the, the face with my Bible as well. Or, or whatever, we start getting in defense mode going, basically asking, how can I leave this sermon, this church service, this catch-up, this Bible study in exactly the same state I'm in now? If that's your mindset, if you're just hoping to sort of come along and be passive in church and then leave and have a few platitudes and, yeah, we're Bible preaching here and, yeah, we like each other here and, yeah, yeah, see you later. If that's your mindset, then you are standing in defense over your heart, not letting the seed be implanted. Never, never try and leave a sermon, a Bible study, a Bible reading, a catch up with a friend in the same state in which you came to it. You should be leaving bleeding. You should be leaving crying a little bit on the inside at least. You should always be affected by this word, ready, assuming that it's going to rebuke. <clears throat> and that's why he mentions anger in verse 20. He says, slow to anger in verse 19. I think that's, that's telling when a preacher has to say, stop getting so angry when I preach. Like, that's telling you something about the preacher. They're probably a pretty forceful, angry preacher. I remember, you know, you read uh, John Knox's notes, and he says, I need to tell people to stop throwing chairs at my head during my Reformation preaching. That's telling you something. When he has to keep on writing letters saying, Queen, please don't send military forces to my churches to shoot at me anymore, that tells you, this guy's got some fight starting sermon giving, right? And, and so with James, he says, stop getting so angry when I preach, and we could go, well, preach more winsomely, James. His answer's no. His answer's, I'm a Bible writer. You don't get to tell me that. That's a good excuse. His answer is, instead of being defensive and getting angry, which will mean that the word has zero effect on you, instead of getting angry, your anger at God's word never produces righteousness in your life. Look at verse 20. <laughs> your anger at God's word will never make you more righteous. The anger of man will never produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away your filthiness. Don't defend it. Therefore, put away 
your, your wickedness that it says is the rampant w- wickedness which is so common, which is so frequent, which everybody else has that is in, in, in the hearts and relationships of everybody else around you that is so frequently in your own soul, put it away or you won't be able to receive the word of God. With humility, meekness it says here, which is controlled submission to God. I know it sounds the same, but it's not the same. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a disciplined, controlled submission to God's word that says, though I could do other sinfully, though I have a kind of freedom of the will where I can choose to do other things, yet I will, I will by the Holy Spirit, bend my knee, force my life into submission to the word of God. That's what meekness is. So let's read that again with this in mind. Lack of defensiveness to the word, Willingness to have it implanted into our souls so that we can bring forth fruit. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of God, sorry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This word is able to give more and more the blessings of God into your spiritual life if only we would let it be implanted. Don't kick away God's gardening tools as he starts ripping apart your soil of your heart. Don't start throwing away the bags of seed when you realize that this is, this is seed that's going to bring about righteousness of God. I don't want that in my life. When we do that, then God, if we will not be humble, we must be humbled. There's always a more painful experience. But you can see how this, that's our relationship to the Bible. You can see how this immediately applies to your relationship with other people, can't you? Verse 19. <coughs> what we see is your relationships with other people are perfect reflections of your current relationship to the Word of God. It's inescapable. That's why James goes here. You can't weasel out of this. Your relationships with other people, the degree to which you tolerate sin, the degree to which you are short and short-tempered and angry and bitter, the degree to which you, you do not care for the righteousness of God, the degree to which you do not allow the word to grow in your relationships is because you have that same defensive, unrighteous relationship with the word. So verse 19. Be quick to hear in your relationships. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger in your relationships. Some people, this is, this is an analogy I've, I've thought of. <coughs> uh, some people treat the Bible, treat commands like kids on a snow day instead of desperate people in need of water. Some people love snow. You know, it's, it's the same stuff. You're dealing with the same material, the base element. They, it is H2O, liquid form, snow form, sure, but same element. Some people treat the Bible as we ought to, having been humbled by our trials. We are desperate and parched. We need the life-giving water. So we see water. It is straight into our face. It is down our gullet because we need it. But some of us treat the Bible like it's, like it's snow on a snow day. It's just that kid who sees it, puts it into an attack uh, weapon called a snowball and starts hurling at other people. That's a great command. Take that. That's an awesome rebuke. Post that. That's an awesome little post in a meme form. Biblical truth. Whack it at your friend because they need to hear it. Some people think that as the word comes, awesome. I'm going to share that, tag that person, send it to them, put that in my little, uh, little bank back here so that I can hit them with it at fellowship group 
How many of us are, are trying to weaponize the word without it having a life-giving force and power in your own life? Now, the test of that, if you're doing that, is that you just thought, I've got a friend who does that. There's that guy at church, I bet he does that. I hope he's listening right now. If that's you, you're that. Instead, with meekness, do, do not treat the word as something to throw at other people, but treat it as something that must come into your life, lest you starve and die. You read that it saves your soul, and you say, amen. It is what I need day by day and week by week is the word of God allowed into my soul. <clears throat> You have anger toward other people, like in verse 20, which is not producing the, right relation, the righteousness of God. Or you have anger at the words that other people speak to you in righteousness because of your poor relationship with the word of God. Verse 21, you have filthiness and wickedness with other people. Maybe your non-Christian friends are sort of your little pocket of excuse in your life that you, 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 uh, you, you, you dwell in the flesh with them. You do sinful things with them. You allow that sort of one area of your life that other Christians don't really see into, so you're okay with that. You, you speak in more filthy ways. You watch more filthy things. You joke in more filthy ways, and that's okay because they're not going to judge you. They're not Christians. They may not even know that you're a Christian. Well, James is saying your relationship with people is reflective of your relationship with the Word. You don't cut out sin from your heart to receive the Word. That's why you don't cut out sin out of your relationships. You tolerate it. And it is doing damage to your soul. Or maybe you have wickedness against other people. Because you are not letting the word do its work in you to remove the wickedness of your soul. Therefore, our relationship to the word is immediately reflective in our relationships with other people. <clears throat> but we can keep going. Look at verse 22. We can keep making our way through this. And we see if number one was not receiving the word because we're in defense mode. Error number two is not receiving the word because we're in deception mode. Because we are hearing partially. What he's going to call hearing but not doing. This is the person who thinks, <coughs> you think you have a great relationship with the word because you're a learner. You think you have a great relationship with the Bible because you're a scholar or a theologian or you're a good student. You say, I'm a great disciple, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty self-taught, commands are memorized, doctrines are learned, I'm good at, I'm self-taught. And James would say, very likely you're self-deceived. Very frequent, very often is the habit that you are just somebody who has allowed yourself to get into a pattern of self-deception. Look at verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. This is the brother of the man Jesus who said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? And already, if you're this person, you've started telling yourself, I know what that's called, it's called sanctification. It's called progressive sanctification. It's different from uh, uh, situational or positional sanctification, which is more of a justification idea. And Paul talks about this. He, he, he talks in words of like flesh and, and spirit. And, and then often John will talk like world and God. But, but here James, he's going to speak in hearing and doing. And you've already started defining things, rattling off a little lecture in your head. You're going to think about how you're going to turn this into a post later. And again, snowball, throw it at somebody else. If that's you, if you love footnotes, and this is what you do, you, you read something that is pretty harsh command or pretty, pretty firm in Scripture and you don't like how it sits, and you go, I, I, what do the footnotes say? I've got a very large, thick study Bible here. I'll, I'll just, I'm, I must be interpreting that wrong. There's going to be something here that softens the blow of James. 
So you go, I wonder what this word means in the Greek. You don't know Greek. But you, see, you go to the Greek to see what is, what is the lexicographical uh, uh, spectrum of this word. Because we're quick to not listen. We're quick to be hearers. Okay, so, so maybe in the first one you want to say, no, I'm okay. I come into sermons. I'm open-eared. I'm open-booked. I'm open-bibled. I'm trying to learn. I remember stuff. I can remember the series we've gone through, the lessons we've taught. I lead a fellowship group or I lead a Bible study with friends or at uni. Like you're going to say, I am a hearer. I'm not quick to be defensive. I'm not quick to get angry at God's word. I love God's word. I'm a good student. That's not enough. In James's mind, you may still be entirely self-deceived if you're the sort of person who learns but does not do. It is only partial hearing if it is not immediately becoming obedience. <coughs> we, we have this idea, we get in this erroneous way of thinking that the test of whether or not you understand a doctrine or command or text of scripture is whether or not you can mentally tick it off in that night at fellowship group. We think either you do or you don't get it if you can walk away from the Q&A session going, oh, thank you, it's clear now. We think, that's it, he got it, she's learned it, that's great. She, she was a hearer, he was a hearer and didn't push away the word of God. We think they get that doctrine, they understand the, the meaning of that element of theology if we can see them click and go, ah, now, now I understand. In James's mindset, whether or not you fully understand doctrine is not able to possibly be told in the same night. He's going to come back to you weeks, months, and a year later and say, how has your life changed because this doctrine shifted the steering wheel? Because of how it changed how you thought, how you viewed the world, how you understood the laws of God. Whether or not you get the word, whether you get the sermon, is not able to be shown in the afternoon or night after the sermon. It has to be shown in the weeks and months to come. This is pushing against any kind of, any kind of self-flattering, uh, polished outsideness that you might be tempted to engage in at church. You don't have to prove anything here. And definitely, the more you try and prove yourself to other people, the more you get in a habit of deceiving yourself and the more polished you are, the less the word is able to soak in. So verse 22 again, let's hear it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So he's not commanding don't hear. Like he's not going to say lectures, sermons, study Bible, bad. Just be doers, not hearers. He's not saying that. He's saying be hearers, but be hearers and doers, not merely hearers. Hear, do. Hear, do. Learn, obey. Learn, obey. That's the, the habit that we need to be in. <coughs> he talks of self-deception. The reason that not being a doer is so self-deceptive, like he doesn't just say you're being disobedient. He's saying you're actually engaging in a lie against yourself and you're believing it. Self-deception is an element of sin that is very hard to pick up on. That's why we need other people we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to things. But self-deception, he, he speaks of it as being self-deception because self-deception says that I'm the kind of Christian, like we touched on before, I'm the kind of Christian that can come to my Bible, I can come to a sermon, I can come and engage in a meaningful fellowship group, and I'm the sort of person who, it, I need to learn something, sure, I don't have perfect knowledge, but I'm likely not going to have to repent, or I'm likely not going to have to talk to the Lord on the drive home and think about how I need to change. That that's just not me today. If you are a hearer and a learner 
and a student and a memorizer and a theologian, but not at every moment that you deal with the Word of God, asking and expecting it to make demands of you and leave you changed, you're self-deceived. You fall into a habit of thinking, there's just sometimes I get to handle the word and I choose whether it's on rebuke mode or on passive mode, like easy mode or hard mode. We think we, think we have that power with the word. I've heard it said, the Bible is the sword of the spirit, but it's a sword that has no handle. There's nowhere to grip the Bible that doesn't hurt. Think, think this of preachers. There's no way that we, we sort of get the easy part. We, we hold the, the leather-wrapped flesh iron part and, and just point uh, uh, blade outwards. There's, there's no handle on this Bible. Every time we pick it up, we are being cut or we are being self-deceived. <clears throat> it always demands to change us. If we're not changing, that is our sinfulness at play. And he uses this great picture of the mirror. If anyone, verse 23, anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, is like a man that looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once he forgets what he, what he looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When we look at the mirror, I mean, Think of, a, think of a context. I, I wanted to say that it's just unthinkable that, that somebody is looking in a mirror without the intent of seeing what they look like in order to make a change, right? No one does that. Why would you look at a mirror if you didn't have the initial and immediate intent to then change something about yourself? And the answer is the gym. That's a perfect situation when people are looking at themselves in the mirror all day. They've got those mirror rooms. Yeah, I know about those. those. Those little square rooms filled with mirrors so that you just go in and you can take the perfect selfie. So you can pose the perfect way. Those aren't for self-improvement. Everyone knows that. Everyone says, well, I've got to take these, these tricep selfies. I've got to get this good angle on myself. I've got to get a friend to take a good photo of me to post to social media for some reason so that I can check my technique, so that I can see what muscles I'm lacking, etc., etc. It's It's false. No one. We know it. No one's going into those rooms and then writing down their flaws and what they need to work on. They're just going in for self-enjoyment. That's what we're like. When we come to the Word, if we don't expect it to hurt us, demand change of us, then we're the sort of person who thinks, I, just, I read the word, it says something about righteousness, and that's a reflection of me. I love it. It's a great little, it's a little pop-up pop uh, 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 mirror pocket thing that ladies use. Never used one, the little, you know, the pop-up mirror that they touch themselves up with, that thing. That's what the Bible is for you. I love it. We open it, I look at it, I see myself, I'm happy, I close it. Or if we do see anything that is sinful, we immediately go away saying, I learned a doctrine that I shouldn't have that huge mark of soot or clay or coal or dirt or food in my teeth. I shouldn't have that there. What a very helpful doctrine. And I'll walk away and make no changes. I'll come back next week. I'll look in the mirror again and I'll notice I've got another mark on my face, another bit of broccoli stuck in my teeth and I'll learn the doctrine that I'm not supposed to have that there. How helpful. I'll walk away and make no changes. This is what the man or woman is like who does not engage intentionally in the question. Every sermon, every Bible study, every fellowship group, every devotion that you do, you start by asking the question, by making the assumption, God, I need to be rebuked. I haven't even opened the Bible. I know three things I need to repent of. Please work on me. Chase after me. Pursue me. Let me, as he says in verse 25, persevere. 
I love his, his, his positive look of the word of God here, that he calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty, this law that, that, that makes you more and more righteous, which gives freedom as you read it, the perfect law, the law of liberty, look into it, and when it harms you, when it hurts you, and when it offends you, persevere, brothers and sisters. Say, this is a good pain. This is God doing this work in me. I'm going to persevere until I see myself changed by its command. <clears throat> Therefore, as we look into the word of God, we must hear it, not be quick to defend ourselves, and in the hearing, we must immediately apply it, expecting like a seed, if it goes in, it must bear fruit externally as well. And then thirdly, he, he ends up with, with the three simple, straightforward tests, I mean the commands, but they're also a test as to how much you've been listening so far. If you're defensive, you'll try and over-theologize the next three phrases. If you, are, if you are a hearer only but not a doer, you're going to hear and agree but not change or seek to obey the next few verses. But here's what he says. In three quick signs of somebody who has been born again, according to verse 18, you have been born again by the word of the gospel. And if you are somebody who hears and does, this is what your life will look like. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So number one, the use of your language and tongue. Secondly, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Number two, mercy and benevolence to those in need. And thirdly, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, an all-round and general holiness in a corrupt generation. That's it. Now, we need to be able to, if, if the first two points about hearing and not being defensive and hearing and doing, if they land, then we should be able to just read those and say, do them. Do them. There's no element in what I'm going to say now that sort of tries to over-explain and therefore under-apply these things. You need every one of you. If we would have a one-on-one -on -one chat later and you go, how can I apply this to my life more? Pastor Tom, I would tell you, watch your language more. I don't even have to spend any time with you in your life or know your name to be able to tell you if you're a Christian, God wants you to have a tighter control over what you joke about, say how you speak to people, and what you, you, you let come out in moments of anger and trial. That, that's just a blanket application. Every one of us, be sure that your words are guarded. Secondly, we can say just blanket application. You need to be more generous and willing to be put out in order to be, to be sacrificial in service to people in need. Now, now in James's day, remember, persecution. Everybody's spread. Men are getting hunted and killed by people like Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. And, and what does that leave behind? People out of their homes, out of their income, the very most vulnerable of them will be those without defensive fathers and husbands, the, the widows, the children without fathers, the orphans, those who are now in need, and especially in James's day. It's not entirely different today. Whatever, whatever the social welfare situation we may have is, the most vulnerable in this world is still fatherless homes, fatherless children. They need extra protection. They need service. They need help. They need generosity. That's what they need. And we just need to go. The last six months, how, how often has your wallet opened for somebody in that sort of situation? 
Maybe this is also a, a, somebody who's migrated with very little. Maybe somebody who has had some kind of effect from a pandemic or work closures or somebody who has had natural disaster occur to their situation. Let's put any kind of, of uh, other example in here. But people in need, how often have you benefited them? Let's not over-theologize that. How often have you done that? And whatever it be, seek to improve all the more in that. And then, of course, thirdly, do not, do not allow yourself to be touched and stained by the word. I, I know that before we said we should not be like polished brass, which can absorb nothing. We should be, we should be like soil, ready soil to receive whatever God speaks and, and, and turn that into to reflective actions. Whatever we hear, we're going to implement and copy and do. But towards the world, we do need to be polished brass, able to, to pass through the world, and, and if there's any marks on it, it's able to be dealt with in a, in a swift wipe. We should be those who are, who are not porous on our surface, who are not like soil and receiving and being sewed into by everything we touch, every conversation we have, every bit of music that we listen to, every movie we watch, every TV series that we engage in. We need to be those who look like a, a floating bob of gold in a muddy river. Yes, we're in this world. Yes, Jesus has not plucked us out of it or given to us a perfect world around us, but he expects that by the word of God which brings life, by the regenerating work that he worked in you so that you're a new creation, and by the empowering Holy Spirit which connects the two, your new nature and his word, and powerfully brings about righteousness, he expects that you can be a, a flash of gold, a precious jewel or metal in this staining, corrupted world. That's the Christian norm. James has, James has no room for Christians who want to say that it's just, it's just all so normal, it's so nominal, it's so common that us Christians, we just sort of mostly lose the fight to sin. We mostly pick up the habits around us, and we mostly don't look any different. I mean, don't you read the, the Barna Group statistics? They divorce is the same in and out of the church. Pornographic addiction is the same in and out of the church. First of all, not actually true. Second of all, we don't care what statisticians say. God has given us commands, and he expects that we look very, very different. I was listening to um, our former pastor here, Craig Island, a while back as he preached this, and this stuck with me. For years, I, I still remember this, this reality. It's not an analogy. It's, it's just context. Then in James's world, the, the Jews had started, right before the persecution, the Jews had started getting saved. They had this perfect little commune that every Christian wishes they could have, where the whole, whole, all of their families are saved. They've got households that they're having meals together in. They're having campfires. They're singing uh, John Mayer songs. They, they've, got, they've got Shane and Shane playing in the background. They never have to leave. They're all self-sustained. They've, they've got it there. They, they just have this perfect Christian community. They, and, and it's very easy in that situation to not be stained by the world because the world that you're in is just so, is just so Christian. It's so, it's so beautiful. And, and how many Christians also get tempted with this idea wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be awesome? Can't you imagine with me if we just go buy a block of land somewhere out west of Gatton, we set up our, our high fence, barbed wire, sentries on the gate, we'll do our own farming, solar panels, church in the middle of town. Wouldn't that be awesome? And I know it sounds culty, but every one of you would say, yeah, 
Like, unless you hate camping, and then we'll build your house. It doesn't matter. But we love that. We would love the idea of just being surrounded by Christians in a, in a less fallen world, in a beautiful little society. But that's, that's heaven that's waiting for you. That's not now. But the Jews had this taste of that, just this, this all-absorbing Christian community that was beautiful, but it was, it was not real life. Because only a, matter, a short matter of time later, God sent persecution because they weren't supposed to try and make that life for themselves. They were meant to spread, and they didn't. So he sent persecution to get them out of there, get them out of their comfort zone and into the world. And I think that's the context that James is speaking into. See, I know how easy it was when we all lived in each other's house, when everyone was a Christian, how easy it was to be unstained by the world. But that doesn't take much of an immune system. That doesn't take much of fighting sin and temptation. What you have now is realistic. What we all have now, being gone and working with non-Christians, spread about amongst non-Christian family members and friends, that's our situation. And James is saying, be unstained by that world. If you're not unstained, if you're not merciful and benevolent and generous, and if you are not in control of your tongue, then you are self-deceived, your religion is worthless, and you have no effect in this world for the Lord God. That's what James would deliver to us tonight. So at this point, we must remind ourselves that where that is our command and our demand, and the gospel makes no excuses for Christians to get lax on their sin, and yet hearing those commands, the one thing which is able to save your soul, James said, you're helping other orphans and widows, you're keeping your tongue in check, and you're remaining unstained, that's a command. It's binding on you. You'll be judged if you do not do it, but that can't save your soul. The thing that saves your soul is the word of the gospel. The thing that brings you forth into life is that word of truth, the knowledge embraced, loved, accepted that Jesus died for me. That is what we must remind ourselves is the one gateway into heaven, into right standing with God which will produce right speaking, right generosity, and right holiness. But first, and if you're not in Christ Jesus, this is the command, the demand, the very first thing God requires of you. Be made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ because he came and he was that one emblem, as, as, as John says, quoting Jesus, that he was lifted up like, like the serpent of the Old Testament so that anybody who looks to him is immediately healed from this staining world you would just look to Jesus dying on the cross, who rose again to life and is now enthroned on high. If you look, you believe, you trust in that gospel, you're immediately saved and your life is freed up in liberty to live this way. Let's pray. Father God, James is, is so applicable and if we, if we try and address him and do anything other than be commanded, if we try and read this and do anything other than make immediate applications to our mindset, our relationships, our lives, then we're in sin. Father God, I pray that you would remove the scales, remove the defensiveness, remove the, the polished brass surface that we bring to the word of God so often. You just make us vulnerable before your word to be, to be pulverized, to be beaten into shape, to be, to be tenderized and to be receiving that sweet gospel of the word. That, that, that sweet commandment and law of the word, which is able to, to bring about beauty and glory and righteousness in our souls. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people tender towards your word so that we are not hardened by it, 
and hardened towards the world so that we are not conformed to it. Would you make us all people who love studying the Word of God, who love learning more doctrine and, and are never willing to just sit on our, on, our, on our behinds and think that we'll just have a childlike faith, know very little doctrine, understand very little, and therefore not be hearers. No, God, make us hearers who love the Word, but more so. Make us changed people. Make us, make us obedient to the same extent in which we are learners. Father God, we need your Holy Spirit in this. We are far too complacent. We are far too happy to, to just learn and not do. But look, for, any, for anyone in this room who does not know Jesus as Savior, would you stop them? Would you stop them in their seats? Would you stop them in their life? Would you arrest them? Would you, would you strike their heart and tell them they are condemned? They need a Savior. They are guilty. They need a Redeemer. And would you point them to the Lord Jesus Christ? Not who demands anything, who requires obedience of them, but who went and obeyed in their place who went and died for their sins and in our place before you, Lord God. Would you please give the Lord Jesus Christ to anybody that is unbelieving. Spread the gospel through this city and this, this state through us, Lord God. Please bring revival, bring your word to bear, and may you redeem many people through this message and many others. May we be a Jesus-loving, Jesus-like church. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.